If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Friday, February the 7th, and you're listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism, a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution. My guest today in our recording studio on the campus of Stanford University is John Yu. John Yu is a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, a professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. Is that the name for it now, John? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. We'll get to that in a minute. If, it's, if you got $100 million, it'll be the Whalen School of yes. Law. And he is a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. From 2001 to 2003, John Yu served as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department of President George W. Bush. And if you've been watching the impeachment saga for the last three months, John Yu has been very hard to miss. He's been a fixture on cable TV. John, thanks for coming and talking about impeachment today. Bill, thanks a lot. It's great to be with you again. Let's start this with a pop quiz. How many lawyers are there in America, would you guess? Oh, God, at least a million, probably more. Would you say more? I would say more. I, it might be just a million in California now that I think of it. 1.35 million. Oh, my God. One lawyer for every 243 Americans. Actually, that's not nearly enough. <laughs> we need more law schools and professors. So question, John, if you were yeah. watching the impeachment saga for the last three months and you're watching a lot of members of Congress and attorneys with very high-powered legal degrees arguing the nuances of the Constitution and legalities and so forth, do you think admissions for law school are going up or down? <laughs> are people now interested in the law or are people flocking to business school? Actually, what we've seen at Berkeley is we've seen admissions, uh, I mean, sorry, applications going up. Mm -hmm. we, and we actually call it the Trump effect. The, uh, since Trump has become president, more people are going to law school. Uh, I don't know why. Maybe, well, what we saw in the uh, Trump trial was that we need more prosecutors and defense attorneys. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, I want to start you with a little history lesson today, John. Uh, and I want to take you back to 1975. Uh, you probably went around on the planet in 1975. Oh, no, I right? was around. I was around. Barely. <laughs> Barely. Barely. 1975, William O. Douglas steps down after 36 years on the Supreme Court. Gerald Ford, now President of the United States, gets to make a replacement, and that replacement is John Paul Stevens, mm. who goes on to serve until 2010, replaced by Sonia Sotomayor. Uh, Stevens is one of those classic surprise court appointments. He was seen as a conservative judge when he came in. Didn't turn out that way, sort of like Earl Warren here from California. The story is this, John. Uh, the uh, ceremony uh, is held at the White House to uh, name Stevens, and Douglas, uh, Justice Douglas, comes along to the event. He's now very infirm. He's in a wheelchair. He's had some health issues. And Gerald Ford comes up to the uh, Douglas. He says, good to see you, Mr. Justice. And Douglas looks at him and he goes, yeah, it's really nice seeing you. We've got to get together more often. <laughs> here's why I bring it's this up, John. Story. It's a very sarcastic thing that Douglas yeah. said, and here's why. Five years earlier, Gerald Ford, not the president, but the minority leader in the House of Representatives, tried to launch an impeachment proceeding against Douglas. Nixon administration wanted Douglas out of the way. They were tired of his liberal judgments on the court. They wanted him gone. Gerald Ford went to the floor of the House, and he argued that, just, uh, that Douglas was guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors. And then he added that high crimes and misdemeanors, John, should be defined as, quote, whatever a majority of the House of Representatives considers them to be at a moment in history. Let me repeat that. Whatever a majority of the House of Representatives considers them to be at a moment in history. John, is Gerald Ford vindicated after what we just saw in Washington? <laughs> uh, I love Gerald Ford, actually. I think he's one of our most underrated presidents. 
and he's a fellow graduate like me of the Yale Law School, which mm -hmm. means that he learned most of his law after graduation. But I think I'm sad. I think he's wrong on that. I'm afraid. Uh, and in fact, maybe the problem was that the House impeachment proceedings this time around went forward under a Ford kind of understanding of the impeachment clause. But I don't think – now, there's a difference. People can get confused about this. It is definitely true that the Supreme Court and our court, lower courts will not review an impeachment. They have said that quite clearly uh, in a case actually called Nixon versus United States. Now, this is not Richard Nixon, but as I tell my students, anybody named Nixon who makes it to the Supreme Court automatically loses. <laughs> so this was a Judge Nixon who was impeached for bribery. Great examples. He was still – he was in jail serving his sentence but had not been impeached. So he was still a judge and was still receiving his judicial salary while he was in his cell. And so the Senate had to remove him from office. Um, he actually went to the Supreme Court said my – it was very similar to Trump. He said the procedures that were used by the House and Senate to remove me were unfair and so it violated my due process rights. And essentially the Supreme Court said we will not review impeachments at all. The House and Senate get to run them as they see fit. So Ford was right about that point. If, he, if the House decides to impeach someone, there's no way to go to court and seek review. It, in terms of raw political power, it really is up to the House. But in terms of constitutional law, I don't think he can be right. There are standards that are set up by the phrase treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Explain to me, John, from the House majority, from the Democratic perspective here, why those two counts constituted high crimes and misdemeanors. So I actually think the House Democrats had a much better case than they knew. But since they're so allergic to looking at what the framers' original intent was, that they didn't actually use the best historical materials they could have. Although since they kept referring to the founders all the time, I assume they have immediately rendered themselves unappointable by any Democratic president to the federal courts. Uh, and I might, let me also add that the President Trump, on the other hand, his defense team was, you know, the most – you could say they were just like liberal Democratic judges. They didn't look much at the founding. They kept talking about present-day concerns. But the House voted out two articles of impeachment. The first one was abuse of power. Uh, and they should have been more specific because abuse of power – I think Trump's uh, defense team did a good job saying abuse of power is potentially, uh, as Ford said, whatever the House thinks it is. But I don't think it's just uh, an undefinable political term. Uh, Alexander Hamilton in Federalist Number 65 does say that uh, these offenses are not just legal. They're also political in nature. They're offenses against the body politic. But when the Constitution was written and debated, the critics of the Constitution, the anti-federalists, attacked the uh, federalists for not putting enough checks on presidential power. They said, you've made it too hard to remove a president. Uh, and the Federalists said, well, we'll give you two examples of things which are not crimes, which would be impeachable. And one was the King of France giving the King of England money uh, in exchange for the King of England saying, I'm not going to enter the wars against the French on the continent, which was not a crime at that time. And then another interesting case they gave was what if the president signed a terrible treaty or entered a terrible war that was not really in the public interest but only benefited a region or a state or just the president himself. They said in those cases you could impeach and remove a president. So the, 
But the other thing, though, shows you is that uh, a high crime and misdemeanor has to be something really serious, something that really harms the country that's on a par with treason and bribery, not just anything you think is an abuse of power. Interesting. Uh, who is Ed Chemerinsky? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, <laughs> he, he's uh, someone I debate all the time who also happens to be the man who sets my salary over at the law school. So yeah, he's so the this, dean of the law school at Berkeley. part of my great agenda to get you fired from Berkeley and come to Hoover full-time. <laughs> I mentioned your boss, the dean of Berkeley Law, uh, because he wrote an op-ed on what he thought were the wrong lessons coming out of impeachment, John. And there are six points he put in the op-ed. And I want to run each one by you and get your thoughts. So. So get ready oh, to come here full <laughs> Okay, here's, uh, so first of all, let me read this quote from Chemerinsky, get yeah. your reaction. He wrote, quote, I fear that the impeachment's strongest message for future presidents, especially those whose party holds a majority in the Senate, they need not fear impeachment removal almost no matter what they do. A crucial constitutional check on the president has been rendered largely meaningless by the Trump impeachment, and this should be a frightening lesson for all of us. I, well, first, I think that's completely wrong, although you hear that remark made a lot by people in the House Democratic majority. So one thing I think that's mistaken, and I think, Bill, you would agree with this, is that that statement ignores politics. Mm -hmm. It ignores the rest of the Constitution. Uh, just because a president isn't impeached doesn't mean there aren't ways to check that president. There aren't ways to mobilize political opposition. Uh, there aren't ways... Look at the standard ways that the Congress controls a president now. You have funding. You don't, the House doesn't have to fund any of President Trump's initiatives. There's legislation and there's oversight hearings. Nothing stops the House Intelligence and Judiciary Committees from continuing oversight hearings into the Ukraine mess. They can call John Bolton as a witness. They could try to find out more what happened with the holdup of aid. They can see if it's happened with any other countries. So I don't – just because you didn't use impeachment – doesn't mean you don't have other ways to check the president. Look at all the other way, look at all the other presidents who haven't been impeached, who have, you know, suffered serious uh, blows at the hands of Congress. I don't see why Congress today couldn't do the same thing. Okay, fair enough. Uh, let me go through Chemerinsky's points for you. Point number one: the idea that Trump did nothing wrong, yeah. that he was not guilty of using his office to his political advantage. So I think Trump did something that was inappropriate, but wasn't criminal. Uh, it just wasn't – my standard was serious enough like treason and bribery to justify uh, removal. Um, I don't think the lesson after this to many presidents is, uh, okay, if you don't do something that's impeachable, you can just sort of get away with it. Mm -hmm. uh, look at all the political uh, disruption that's been caused by impeachment. Uh, and I, think, I, I, I think that uh, Trump has uh, lost a lot of political time as it were. He hasn't been right. able to move forward on his agenda. Uh, he's given the House, uh, just the House Democrats, an enormous platform to attack uh, him, and I don't. I, you know, th this is also something the framers talked about. They said that even because here's another, it's another interesting accusation by the anti-federalists. They said uh, because of that two-thirds requirement to remove in the Senate, you'll never impeach a president and remove them. And several of the federals said it's still harmful just to be impeached, and even if you're not removed. A much, uh, the representatives of a majority of the country, which is the House, have said we don't think someone should continue – someone is unworthy right. to become president, uh, stay in the office. And, that and they said that would make it harder for that person to win re-election. 
Right. So I'm reminded of that line in the movie The Social Network at the end where yeah. they're explaining to Zuckerberg that he needs to settle out of court and give the give the, uh, well, the, brother, twins the, Winkle, the money. Give the Winklevi a lot of <laughs> yeah. money. And the lawyer says in the in the scheme of things it's a speeding ticket. <laughs> so are you suggesting then the fact that Trump is guilty of a speeding infraction here? I would say not necessarily a speeding ticket. But you're saying it's not criminal, it's not jail time, it's just it's it's not as so harmful to the country as treason and bribery would be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually think that I actually thought Bill Clinton ought not be removed from office either. He did commit a crime, but his perjury was not that harmful to the nation right. and didn't rise to the level of treason or bribery either. Okay. Dean Chemerinsky, second point, John. Uh, the president of the United States should not be impeached in the last year of a term. And what he points to is that there's no calendar restriction in the Constitution. Again, this is one that uh, Irwin, uh, like many uh, of his uh, liberal friends, likes to just read the text of the Constitution and make inferences without looking at the constitutional text in light of its history. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the history, the framers repeatedly said and thought that the main check on the president was elections, both the midterm elections for control of Congress, which could really hamper a president, and then the uh, re-election every four years at a time when there were no two-year limit, two-term limits on the president. So even when a president wasn't going to run again, they thought that that specter of re-election would always check him. Uh, no president wants to be voted out of office and lose re-election. So they said, look, the main check on abuse of power is going to be the ballot box. Right. Impeachment was supposed to be this extraordinary remedy that you would use when the president was doing something so bad, you could not wait till the next election. And so I think uh, I think Irwin's wrong in the sense that there's no time limit in the Constitution, but the structure, the way the framers wrote it was that it would make little sense to put the country through impeachment when you're go- the American people are going to render the final verdict in, right now, seven months. Right. Okay. The dean's third point. Bad lessons out of impeachment, the notion that the President of the United States can ignore congressional subpoenas with impunity. Uh, now, this suggests, first of all, that you can ignore subpoenas, but then ignore them with impunity. So I'm kind of curious what the qualification is there, but the idea that congressional subpoenas go ignored. Yeah, and this was the heart of the second article mm-hmm. of impeachment, which claimed that President Trump had committed something called obstruction of Congress. Right. And I, would, I was hoping at least one or two Democratic senators would have voted to acquit on that ground because that ground does seem really off base in this respect. Uh, presidents no doubt have a right of what's called executive privilege. Uh, that's been recognized by the Supreme Court in the other Nixon case where Nixon loses, U.S. versus Nixon. Uh, even though Nixon had to hand over the Watergate tapes uh, before uh, over to uh, the court system and the Watergate prosecutor, the Supreme Court said the president has a constitutional right to confidential communications. And it said the height, the strongest executive right would be discussions with his aides about national security, military, diplomacy, and law enforcement. That's exactly the kind of materials that the House was seeking here. And in fact, you had people testifying in their investigation in defiance of the president's right of executive privilege. And so the thing we don't know, uh, and we don't know in part because the House would not wait to see how the courts would decide this. The thing we don't know is what happens when that presidential confidentiality is balanced against the House's right, or I'm sorry, Congress's right to conduct an impeachment proceeding. Uh, All we know is that the courts have said if it's a prosecution that needs the information, and the information itself is not about military national security, then the people who are being prosecuted have a right to get that information to use it for their own defense. That's actually the Watergate tapes fact pattern. Mm-hmm. But we don't know what, what if that 
is uh, balanced instead against a Senate and House impeachment inquiry. The courts could say we're going to stay out of it because we don't touch impeachment. Right? I, I think that's probably what they might have done. But to say invoking your own constitutional rights, which the Supreme Court has recognized, is an impeachable offense has got to be wrong. And so I think Irwin saying after this that any president can just refuse to obey subpoenas – uh, I, th I think that's unfair to Trump because I think Trump actually has quite good grounds to oppose a second article. Okay. Um, item number four, uh, the defense of the president that the notion of high crimes and misdemeanors means a real criminal act. And I think you've already alluded to this. Yeah. I, I, I don't think that's a correct reading of the Constitution. But it's interesting, Bill, what, does, what do we take from the trial and the acquittal? Uh, you don't have to uh, read the acquittal as agreeing with Alan Dershowitz, right? right. This is Dershowitz's. Uh, point that it has to be a crime. Uh, in fact, Lamar Alexander, who is one of the key senators, uh, said, I think uh, Trump did it. <laughs> I think Trump did a quid pro quo. Right. Uh, I don't think necessarily that has to be a crime, but it just, I think it was inappropriate. It just wasn't serious enough. It's very much like the line I'm taking. Standard, right? Yeah. And if you look at Senator uh, Romney, who was the only Republican to vote to convict on the first article, he essentially is a, uh, he he rejected the idea too that it had to be a crime. He just thought this was serious enough. And and uh, you, I think you saw maybe Senator Ben Sass said that uh, Lamar Alexander's uh, declaration or statement actually spoke for a lot of the senators in the Republican uh, caucus. Uh, so I I actually think coming out of this that no one's going to take that as the principle right. that it has to be a crime in order to be an impeachable offense. Let's spend a minute on Romney, John. So he did something historic. This is the first mm -hmm. time a senator has voted to impeach a convict, a president of his own party. It's not happened before. Uh, although you can go back to the Johnson trial and look at that and all the Johnson technically had members of own party. There were differences within the, yes. the two parties at that time. So it's a little, little looser interpretation. But Romney, Romney talked about doing research. He invoked, mm -hmm. the, uh, he invoked the Federalist Papers. He explained his rationale to his fellow members. He mm -hmm. uh, did pre-interviews with the Washington Post and the New York Times to get his message out there very straight. Clearly, he put thought of this. But you, mm -hmm. you heard what he said. You read what he said. Interpret his thinking. Do you think he's on base? I would – I probably would have agreed with him all the way up to the final decision. So it's interesting. He said in some of these interviews that he read Federalist Number 65 mm -hmm. multiple times. That's the, that's the Federalist paper by Alexander Hamilton that explains what high crimes and misdemeanors means and also, interestingly, why the impeachment trial was moved originally from the Supreme Court to uh, the Senate. And you know, Hamilton says the reason we moved it over to the Senate was because it is in part legal, but it's in part political. And I think uh, where I probably disagree with Romney was the political side of it was that is this – again, is what Trump did serious enough, harmful enough to the country to justify removing him from office? Some of the things uh, Senator Romney said – made it seem like that wasn't part of the calculation, that he thought that what President Trump had done was immoral in a way, that, right. and that you shouldn't have people capable of such immorality in the office. Uh, so maybe what Senator Romney should have done was not just skip from 1789 to the present, but read about some of our other presidents, <laughs> right? Because if that were the standard, <laughs> we should have a lot of impeached presidents, right? If you look at just uh, people who are breaking sort of moral standards, you know, just look at John F. Kennedy and LBJ, you know, wiretapping Martin Luther King and all the, the shenanigans that our presidents have uh, gone through. I'm not saying that Trump is better or worse, but if morality is a standard, we should have had probably nine or ten impeachments by now of presidents. 
Yeah, I believe he actually read the Federalist Papers. But you know what, John? When a, somebody runs for uh, president and they tell me their favorite publication is the Federalist Papers, they carry around a copy in their pocket and read it. I'm always struck when somebody tells me Lawrence of Arabia is their favorite film. <laughs> really? You've sat through four hours of it? <laughs> you've read the Federalist Papers from start to finish? Really? Well, he, he said one Federalist paper. <laughs> and they're 84. So he only read number 65. So okay. that one's only about three or four pages long. <laughs> okay. Let's go on to the uh, two more points here from uh, Chemerinsky. Yeah. Point number five was that the Senate trial doesn't, again, the Trump defense here. Yes. The Senate trial doesn't have to be a Senate trial. Senators don't have to be impartial jurors. Well, that's by design. I mean, again, I wish uh, Irwin read the Federalist Papers. I think I'm going to invite him to come over and we're going to read the Federalist Papers line by line. This is a political (laughs) – it's a political process, John. If it were a legal trial, you would be vetting each of the 100 senators for impartialities. For example, I get called for jury duty in California and I can tell you I'm off that in about two seconds. Why? Because they found out that I worked for a Republican governor who was incredibly law and order. I am not a defense juror. <laughs> I'm bought. I'm a vote to convict, so I'm off the juror. The point is, you know, John, I'm going to say that when I get called next time, I'm going to say, I worked for Pete Wilson. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> I didn't uh, think you'd be of surprised that. how fast you get booted. <laughs> no, the point is, John, if you actually sat down and yeah. deposed each of the 100 senators to yeah. try to find ideas and bias, how many senators would you have been left with in this trial? Yeah, zero, I would zero. assume. Yeah. No, the, 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 again, the founders thought about this and they worried about it. They actually, this is an interest, their logic is interesting. They said, we have got to take a trial out of the Supreme Court because impeachments by nature are going to be political. They are going to rend society apart. They're going to trigger the worst partisan fighting. So they actually said, we got to get it out of the Supreme Court because it will ruin the judiciary if they have to manage this political process. So the founders knew it was going to be political, that you weren't going to have impartial jury right. jurors. You're not going to have witnesses and documents, that it would be primarily a political process. And so there's nothing wrong with the jurors, quote unquote, being uh, biased or having their own views. I don't remember Democrats making this, con- raising this concern during the Clinton exactly. I- impeachment trial. The, the second point is, uh, and this is uh, also, I think, something that uh, really became apparent in this impeachment in, compared to the past ones, is that I always thought the worse that the House did in its process, the shorter the Senate would go, because the more defective the House process was, the easier it is for senators just to dismiss the whole thing, say it was unfair, you didn't do a good job. And that's kind of what happened, right? If you compare this to Nixon, which is probably the most full-blown modern impeachment that's like this, because there was no special counsel, the House took over a year to conduct the investigation, wasn't actually even quite finished, they hadn't even voted on the articles, bipartisan staff, full participation by the White House and by Republicans, and deliberate and slow. Consider how fast this happened. You have rumors of a whistleblower in September of 2009. Uh, you have interviews start October of 2000, I'm sorry, 2019. Interviews start October 2019. Articles of impeachment voted out by the House December 2019. Right. That's just way too fast, truncated, and I think Trump could legitimately say unfair. So why would this, you know, in, actually in law, the worse the plaintiff's case is, the shorter the trial needs can be, and the easier it is for a judge just to dismiss the case. Well, you justified you justify the speed rush of the House by saying this this man has to go, but then you sit on it for four weeks yeah. before you give it to the Senate, <laughs> exactly. so you just kind of undo your message. Uh, point number six from your boss, and I'm going to help you repair what's left to your tattered relationship <laughs> with him now. Um, and that is the Dershowitz rationale. Uh, and I think on this one, you're going to agree with him. Uh, Alan Dershowitz, the, the famous lawyer, gets up and he basically says that whatever the president of the United States thinks is in the public interest cannot be an impeachable offense. Yes, that's just got to be completely wrong. In fact, uh, as many people said uh, right after, including me, right after he said that, uh, 
Dershowitz also said, uh, finding out whether potential candidates for the presidency have any skeletons in their closet is in the public interest. And so therefore, even if Trump had asked about Biden in the way that Democrats think, that's actually okay and not impeachable. If that's true, then Watergate was okay too. Right? I mean, that's <laughs> Nixon could have said, I was trying to find out whether future Democratic presidential candidates were actually worthy to hold the office or whether they were commies, mm -hmm. right? And I, I, so I think there has got to be wrong. But if you go back and look at the history, it's clearly wrong because uh, every president thinks what they're doing right. is always in the national interest. But the framers thought there is some kind of objective meter, measure of what's in the national interest and that presidents can, of course, do what's in, you know, push that aside and try to pursue their own political self-interest. Now, you have spent the better part of the last three months pretty much consumed by this. Oh, yeah. You've been writing about it. You've been doing a lot of TV. I'm always fascinated with your own TV, trying to figure out where you are, <laughs> what time it is, if you know what time it is when you're doing the interview. Uh, it's always a beautiful thing in California. You have to do like a 5 o'clock in the morning interview. <laughs> you don't even know who you're talking to. You're so out exactly. Of uh, here's the question, John, though. You've been, you've been absorbed by this for three months now, and you've done a lot of thinking on it. What did you learn in this whole process? <laughs> I put it this way. What, yeah. did you, what did you learn that you did not know after the Clinton impeachment? 20 years ago? Well, this is interesting. One is uh, we had always, the, the lesson people took from the Clinton impeachment, I thought, was this This was just not important enough, what Bill Clinton, uh, yes, he did commit the crime of perjury, uh, but he didn't commit a crime of perjury so seriously harmful to the country that demanded his removal. What we had here was something that was much closer to the line. Mm -hmm. and, so, and so that that that's, you know, we've got cases where we think presidents went over the line, Nixon. But we never had a case this close. And so we, uh, I think this brought, I think this impeachment, I hope it was educational for the American people. It, I think it brought out lots of issues wrapped up into that that we had never really thought about. So for example, one of the, I think, most important legal issues and political issues was a president can do something which could have a plausible claim to being in the public interest. Suppose the Trump White House actually did want to find out about whether the Bidens had been doing stuff in the Ukraine, but just part of a general concern about corruption in Ukraine. You know, that right. became their line. Uh, that is plausible, plausibly in the national interest. Just, I don't want to give $400 million to Ukraine unless I know you're not going to just turn around and give the money to your, you know, corrupt kleptocracy buddies. What we didn't realize so much with Clinton before was that how much presidential intent, the president's state of mind mattered. Because the president can do something which on its face looks legal or constitutional, but if he really, as, as people accused, here, uh, accused Trump of, really just wanted to gather political dirt on his political enemies, mm -hmm. that completely changes whether someone should be impeached or not. The Clinton impeachment didn't really have that flair to it. The Nixon impeachment didn't really have that flavor to it. But in both of those cases, the criminal actions made it clear what was going on. So this actually showed how difficult. The other thing I hope people realize, and I think really hadn't been thought about that much before, was how worried the founders were about impeachment being uh, too often used, and in that sense, turning us into a country that would be more like a parliamentary democracy right. where the legislature just controls the executive. And the founders made the two-thirds requirement in the Senate so high to prevent that from happening, to make sure we always have an independent presidency. And that's to remove someone really requires a high level of consensus and agreement in our society. 
And I, I, I hope that also became very apparent. It wasn't really so apparent in the other cases because with Nixon, you know, he resigned, but he was going to get removed right. handily. And Clinton, we all kind of knew it wasn't going to come close. This one, this impeachment, you know, maybe you could say at the beginning there was no way 20 Republican senators were going to vote to convict. But the process of going through this really brought to light a lot of this, the core structural concerns that are built into the Constitution too. I hope people got that out of it. I, I, right. I did. John, is the notion of censoring a president, is that now dead? I, so this is one of the interesting constitutional problems. I yeah. remember uh, uh, John yeah. Bonnier, who was, I think, the House Minority Leader. Yeah, in back in Clinton. Yeah. He floated the idea of censor, and Republicans kind of poo-pooed it because it, the yeah, votes were already there to impeach Clinton. So they thought, you know, kind of sounds desperate. Yeah. But censor would have, I think, people post, you know, looking now, uh, Clinton's impeachment probably think censor probably the more appropriate measure. Uh, but here's what intrigued me about censoring mm -hmm. Donald Trump. Um, if the goal is to ultimately put Republicans in a difficult spot, impeachment, John, maybe didn't do it because you could just have the defense, as Lamar Alexander did, of I just don't think it rises to the standard. But if you censor the president, you're now asking a Republican senator, a member of mm. the House, to vote on the president's behavior. Yeah. And I'd imagine Lamar Alexander would vote to censor. I imagine Susan Collins would vote to censor. Oh, yeah. I think it's a much more difficult vote for Republicans. That's a good point. And uh, – it's, it's actually another lesson we should have learned, uh, which wasn't that apparent in the floor debates, is that uh, you know, our Constitution uh, only has one mechanism to express disapproval formally of a president, which is right. impeachment. You look at most other countries in the world that have parliamentary democracies. They have things called votes of no confidence. They have all kinds of other ways to, to show that you disapprove of the, pres of the executive, mm -hmm. of, the ch of the prime minister, or the chief executive. And our system doesn't have that. So it's always struggling to find a sub-impeachment way to punish uh, president. And so censure has been proposed various times. It just doesn't – it hasn't worked. So uh, even before Clinton, there's the famous censure motion of Andrew, jo uh, Andrew Jackson, right. uh, who actually was censured – for, again, like Trump exercising his legitimate constitutional powers, he actually vetoed the Second Bank of the United States because he thought it was unconstitutional. He's allowed to think that. He was censured. And then Jackson used that in the midterm elections right. to get a new majority voted into Congress. And, and they, they removed and they, it. And they undid the censor, right? Yeah, and they undid yep. the censor. So there's actually no actual per, you know, censor motion in the, in the record, congressional uh, record, permanent congressional, the permanent record as high school movies used to exactly. call it. Uh, so, but it does point out this, uh, this, this gap in our constitution. So I, I, I think our system is struggling. And you, you could see, uh, and this is what worries me, that also a lesson coming on impeachment, is after this, you could see impeachment becoming a no confidence motion. So suppose uh, you know, the next, you know, we have Mayor Buttigieg is the next president, well, and the Republicans win the House. Gonna get, that's yeah. exactly the I going to give you. It's 2023. Yeah. Mayor Pete is the president of the United States. Bernie Sanders is the president of the United States. It could happen. <laughs> <laughs> and they come in and they do yeah. what first-term Democrats have done of late. They have a very bad first two years in yeah. office, and they get pounded in the midterm election. And now it's a very empowered Republican House yeah. coming in, looking for a little payback from what happened in the previous House. And what do they do? They go to impeach the president. Yeah. I, you could – if they follow the precedent set by this house, why not? Or, right. or, or look at it backwards in history. What if uh, after 2010 or 2012, the house decided to impeach President Obama for right. Obamacare? They could say, look, the president has masterminded this dramatic expansion of the federal government far beyond what – uh, the founders intended, or DAPA and DACA, he's refusing to enforce immigration laws. 
that's should be in fact that's probably closer to an impeachable offense than what Trump did. Uh, I th- I worry that that's going to become more uh, become more part of our f- political future. Right now we can talk impeachment winners and losers, and I think I'd like to stay away from that because I think that's a seven month question. I think, <laughs> let's see what, how the voting is in November, and then we can kind of figure out how uh, impeachment played. Oh, that. I thought you just want to do winners and losers amongst the lawyers. No, <laughs> <laughs> well we can if you want to. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. Um, I think though, uh, let's talk about collateral damage mm. in Washington. And I want to run a few institutions by you and get your thoughts on these because mm. some of these you know very personally mm-hmm. from your past employment. Let's mm-hmm. start with the Justice Department in the United States. So the Justice Department, I think, comes out looking very poorly. So, uh, you know, I'm working on this book on Trump and the Constitution. And one thing uh, I really came away thinking after uh, what happened with the Mueller report and FISA and the surveillance of Carter Page and then also what happened with uh, the Ukraine uh, mess was what you saw was a revolt of the bureaucracies. Mm -hmm. In both cases, you had people in the permanent career civil service who just fundamentally think President Trump is unworthy to be president and did things using their great powers that we trust to them to protect national security in order to get him. Uh, you know, I've, uh, I, you know, I've seen – from what I've seen of the inspector general reports now into how the whole investigation into the Russia corruption story started and the surveillance powers that were used on Carter Page and other uh, campaign, uh, Trump campaign officials – I can't believe it. I mean, I think that was so outside the norms of what the Justice Department uh, has done and was supposed to be prevented in the post-Watergate reforms. I think it was stunning to a lot of Justice Department alumni what happened there. So their reputation has really suffered. Uh, I think that's why people like Bill Barr and Chris Ray volunteer for what's clearly unpleasant service being right. beaten up by your own president, which is they want to restore the norms of the institution. Now, a, a personal story. So Chris Ray and I... Uh, we're in the same class in law school, and in one, we had to sit alphabetically. So there's no X's. So there was Ray, and then there's you. So we used to sit in the back of class often. And I can't think of a uh, actually a better, more upstanding guy to be head of the FBI now and clean house and make sure it's running right than than Chris. I think the country's lucky, actually, that he decided to take the job. And I think similar. I didn't sit next to Bill Barr in law school, right. but I, still, I feel similarly about Barr, too. Well, John, isn't there also a lesson here in the presidency to think very carefully about appointing their attorney generals? Yes. I mean, I think, you know, the, it's, a, it's a, I mean, uh, you can see why John F. Kennedy appointed Bobby right. <laughs> as attorney general because he understood that was the most important uh, job for the health of the presidency. Is, I, I, think, I, I think Senator Sessions uh, was, a, you know, is admirable in some ways as a senator, but he just wasn't suited to be attorney general. In the past, I think, and I don't know if you th- what you think, Bill, so you saw, I think the attorney general has become this position that's seen as a payoff to the most liberal or conservative part of your coalition. So, uh, you know, it's given to, in Democratic administrations, to very liberal people, and in, con- in Republican administrations, very conservative, like uh, John Ashcroft, for example. I don't know if that's necessarily a, a good thing. I understand why they do it, because the Justice Department will have control of a lot of social things, like uh, how to argue abortion cases or gay marriage cases. But the attorney, the Justice Department, I think, is the most important shield and potentially the worst threat to the institution of the presidency. 
Uh, let's talk a bit about the FBI, the notion that if I'm a president of the United States and I come in and I'm not an establishment favorite and I'm seen yes. as an outside force and I'm seen by people in Washington as not fit for the office, the idea that there are worker bees inside the FBI who are going to try to take me down. Yeah, I think that's true. And in fact, uh, one of the I think one of the worst FBI directors you could have would be someone like Jim Comey, unfortunately, which is someone who, th who uh, what you don't want is some kind of crusader in the job who thinks... Right. They know better than the outcome of the political process in the elections. And you can see what the way Comey started acting immediately uh, un in unprecedented ways, like writing down every single conversation he had with the president, storing them in his home safe, giving them to trusted friends to leak to the newspapers. This was a FBI director who thought that he was superior to the normal standards that apply to law enforcement and that even the president of the United States had to be watched. Uh, that is not a, a healthy perspective to have an FBI director. And, and you're, so you're quite right. If you're a new president, you have to, you would be worried. I mean, and that's true, right? You have, you know, uh, I think presidents were worried about Hoover for many years because he was such a, a similar figure. Okay. Uh, the FISA court. And uh, spend a minute explaining what exactly the FISA court is, yeah. how it works. Yeah, and that's taken a big hit. And I, I, I was once in my career heavily involved with the FISA court. So the FISA court refers to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Uh, this is a way that the government surveils people it thinks are not committing crimes, which is what a normal warrant's for, but might be spies, might be terrorists. Uh, they might not have done anything, but they're just information comes to light to make them think somebody might be, say, working with the Russians. Uh, and so it's easier to get these warrants than a normal system. It gives you extraordinary surveillance powers. You could read everybody's email. You can watch what they're doing. You can listen to their phone numbers. It, it could allow 24-hour, round-the-clock surveillance. Uh, because of the secrecy of it, you know, that's involving national security and foreign affairs, uh, the other side, the person under surveillance never finds out. The only people who go to the court are a special corps of lawyers, uh, and they go to this court, which is ex parte. It's, it's actually, I've been in it. It's at the top floor of the Justice Department on the fifth floor in this funny vault with like three-inch steel doors. I always wondered, why would you put a steel vault at the top of a federal building? Because if it gets hit, that thing's going straight down to the <laughs> basement in like the, in the first few seconds of attack. Right. Uh, and so I was, after 9-11, I was part of the team of the Justice Department that rewrote the FISA law to make it easier to get the warrants because we saw that the FISA law had become so bulky and unworkable that it didn't allow us to track terrorists moving around the country. The one thing, though, I never would have thought was that the people at the FBI and the FISA court would ignore the fundamental purpose of the law, because no, it was passed after Watergate. The main purpose of it was to make sure no president in the future would try to surveil <laughs> the candidates of the other party, That's which is what Nixon did. And so FISA was passed to stop that from ever happening, but it was so obvious, we never thought you had to put in the law, don't surveil <laughs> the presidential candidates of the other party. <laughs> and that, that, so I, I don't, I, I, I think there's gonna have to be a huge overhaul of the law uh, and of that court and of the part of the Justice Department and FBI that you know, work on these warrants. But how would you fix that, though, John? Because it seems to me you could put all sorts of stipulations in the law, but ultimately it comes down to a judge's discretion. Yeah. So one way you could do it was to do it is to no longer make it a special court. So mm -hmm. right now the judges are selected by the chief justice. Uh, uh, there's one in basically each major city of the country. You could rotate it so that more kind of regular judges uh, reviewed it. You could also create an ombudsman who would be the person basically who would present the defense for the target. Uh, 
Or here's a proposal I actually would have uh, been more in favor of is get rid of FISA entirely. Let it be run by the president and the FBI, and they are going to be politically accountable. Because what the FISA court does, that system does, is that allows abuse. Look, as we're talking about now, abuse of the surveillance is just blamed on that stupid court. And why did it grant all the warrants? Right. It's really a shifting of responsibility. Uh, if this was done by President Obama himself, uh, he would be suffering the political consequences. And presidents in the future would be a lot more careful about giving these things out. And that's kind of how this was done until Nixon. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned the Chief Justice, John Roberts. Uh, tell me a bit about how he comes out of this. Uh, it's been a very interesting man the past few years since his ruling on the Obamacare uh, decision. People have been watching John Roberts in all times. There are questions of what the chief wants his legacy to be. Yeah. You know, it's funny, uh, you know, uh, John, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, I should call him, is a, you know, very, he's a great lawyer, but he's also, I think, a great judicial politician. And I think you saw this. The only person who might come out of this uh, no worse off than they were before it started is Chief Justice John Roberts. Uh, and, this, and the reason why is because he kept a low profile. He didn't want to make any news. He wanted to make no rulings. He didn't he, dress like uh, yeah, Rehnquist did. That's right. He didn't, 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 didn't put on the Gilbert and Sullivan costume. Yeah, he didn't have the gold bars on right. his arms. He had no wig. <laughs> right. um, he was a non-entity. He did have a moment, though, where he would not read Rand Paul's questions. Yeah, that was actually kind of odd, and he, I don't, and he didn't explain why. Uh, uh, the assumption is because uh, one of the questions, or maybe the same question, was about the whistleblower's identity. The whistleblower, he would not yeah. say the whistleblower's name out loud. Yeah, which I don't know why you couldn't, and right. certainly Rand Paul could get up as he did, and then just say the name outside the Senate, or so. But but again, the interesting thing is, no one really paid attention to Roberts. They just assumed. Uh, the other the other way he could have come up is uh, is if there had been a tie on calling witnesses, uh, but Roberts said he wasn't going to break uh, that tie. And I so I think you know Roberts the way he would look at it, and this is why I think he came out ahead is he's looking long term past the impeachment trial. He's concerned about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. Now I disagree with him on how important that should be. That clearly explains as you as you mentioned before why he voted I think in the Obamacare case to uphold. Uh, the signature law of a popular president, uh, he wouldn't want to burn up any of the legitimacy and political capital of the Supreme Court in running an impeachment trial that's going to be over, whose results foreordained if it could cause adverse consequences to the Supreme Court in the future. So I think he actually came out uh, – probably better off than anybody who was involved in this whole affair. Speaking of hypothetical Democratic presidencies, John, what happens in a Warren presidency <laughs> when President Warren has to bring something before the Supreme Court and Senator Warren uh, just a few days ago questioned the Chief Justice's integrity as impartiality? Why, why would she do this besides the obvious trying to play for votes in New Hampshire? Yeah, I assume Iowa? this is just about winning in the primaries because one thing that struck me about what's been happening and what the impeachment trial ultimately represented was the lengths, the Democrats are so angry at Trump that they are willing to override constitutional norms that they otherwise say they are the protectors of. Right. So uh, you have Elizabeth Warren, for example, is out there amongst others calling for packing the Supreme Court, increasing its size to 15 justices because it disagree with the court's outcome. So if you believe that, then why not attack the chief justice uh, and say, you know, her question was something like, if you don't allow witnesses isn't the credibility and legitimacy of the Chief Justice and the Supreme Court brought into question? It's not even really a question. Right? It's there, sort of a there's statement. A, there's a word for this, John, pun intended, it's unwarranted. 
<laughs> By the way, on a sidebar about uh, about Democrats wanting to redo the Constitution, yeah. Pete Buttigieg wants to blow up the Electoral College. Yes, they want to get rid of the Electoral College. If you too. look at the results in Iowa, what happened? <laughs> That's right. He lost the popular vote. <laughs> That's he right. did very well in delegates. He basically selected, not elected in Iowa. <laughs> well, you know who else had that view? Donald Trump. Donald Trump. So Donald Trump, before the 2016 election, said something like, I don't see why we have to use this old system. Why not just say whoever wins the most votes wins? <laughs> this is why, except for fundraising, no politician, John, likes the internet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, another institution here, uh, the special counsel. Ah, so I think that should die a quick death. So just uh, the point of clarification, the special counsel is different than Ken Starr, for example, who was an independent prosecutor created by statute. How's it, how's it different, John? So special counsel is not created by Congress. It's just created by the attorney general. Mm -hmm. There's no law that protects the special counsel from, by, from being fired by the president. Mm -hmm. uh, Archibald Cox and Leon Jaworski, who investigated Nixon, they too like Mueller, were special counsels. But in between Watergate and today, there was this time when this independent prosecutor was created who could not even be fired by the president and so became a kind of, you know, became a, you know, Inspector Javert from, Le, you know, from Les Miserables where they were just focused on one person and they were going to find something wrong. Now, I actually was quite a big supporter of Mueller because uh, in, DO, in Justice Department right. world, in, amongst Justice Department alums, Mueller is the gold standard. He's the greatest federal prosecutor maybe ever. I mean, he he was a U.S. attorney. He was deputy attorney general. He was head of the FBI. He he is a great trial lawyer. He, you know, so if you were to say who is the greatest living federal prosecutor, I would say Mueller. In fact, that's one of the reasons why Trump should love Mueller because the first half of the Mueller report clearing Trump of collusion with Russia. Nobody thinks there was any collusion with Russia now. I mean, if Mueller clears you, you are cleared. Um, now, destruction of justice is another thing entirely. So I, I think that, uh, however, the problem with the special counsel is giving any individual prosecutor uh, pretty unlimited resources and money and personnel and saying, you find out whether this person did something illegally. That's not the way prosecution works. We look at, did somebody, is there some crime that was committed that's harmful to society? And we go after the worst cases. We just don't say... Your job is just to investigate Bill Whalen and find something that he did that was illegal. That's, I think that kind of institution uh, is, has got to disappear over time. How would a president do that, though, and not come across, not just get blasted by the media as wanting to be above the law? Yeah, so I think what a president can do, and this is where attorney, if you're saying attorney generals are so important, the Justice Department is so important to the health and institution of a presidency, is you could just say, look, Bill Barr, you handle this. There have been accusations that I committed a crime. Accusations say my White House chief of staff committed a crime. Right? That was one of the cases uh, under President Carter, for example. And just say, you, the Justice Department, you investigate that. You use your own normal standards, your own processes, regular prosecutors, and you look into it. Just the way it's going on right now with uh, the U.S. attorney uh, up in Connecticut is conducting an investigation. Were there mistakes made? Were there crimes broken in the whole start of the Russia collusion narrative under the Obama administration? Did they misuse FISA? Did they, you know, buy into the Steele dossier uh, inappropriately? That's how the Justice Department should do it. Just hand it off to a regular prosecutor and let them do it in the normal course of business. But don't give someone the mission to catch a single person. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, the final Washington institution, John, the idea of balance of power between the three branches of yeah. government, judicial, legislative, and executive, 
being co-equals. Uh, can you argue that a win for the president on impeachment is a win for the executive, and the executive comes out of this in a stronger position, which would go back to Chermanisky's idea about ignoring the subpoenas? So I think constitutionally the presidency has still uh, suffered. Uh, you look at how the investigation occurred. You saw a line of State Department, Defense Department, NSC officials testifying against the president, right. ignoring the president's orders not to testify. People forget Trump actually ordered all those people not to show up. Uh, so look at the presidency after this. If you're a president, if you're Trump, certainly, but say you're President Warren or President Buttigieg, are you going to trust the State Department and the NSC and the Defense Department to carry out your foreign policy anymore? No, you're going to think it's you know filled with people who think the interagency process is superior to any presidential foreign policy. And so this is actually the core concern about people who study uh, the executive and study the separation of powers is how does a president, given all the powers we've delegated to the executive branch, given all the powers Congress has given away to the executive branch, is it possible actually for the president to control that huge bureaucracy or has it taken on a life of its own after this impeachment, after the revolt of the foreign service and the career civil servants? You have to ask, does, a, does President Trump or any president really have the ability to control the executive branch, which the Constitution, right? The Constitution only recognizes the president as the one who's responsible for foreign affairs and for law enforcement. But clearly the story is coming out of people. We have a lot of people in the government who don't think that's the case now. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, looking at the president's legal team, uh, you see a thread through some of these attorneys, Pam Bondi, Alan Dershowitz, Jay Sekulow, Ken Starr. These are people who do a lot of airtime. Uh, <laughs> Sekulow has a radio show, I think. Pam Bondi used to be uh, Attorney General of Florida. She's a regular on Fox. Dershowitz is, I don't think I've ever said no to a camera in front of him. Uh, it seems to me that the president made two calculations here. One was obviously smart lawyers, but secondly, people who know the idea of performance art. Yes. Yes, it was... Uh uh, the Fox News studios seemed like a lonely place when the <laughs> president appointed his defense team because they all, all of them, right, were Fox right. people. But, but clearly the White House <laughs> is thinking, you know, I want people yes. who can just not argue about a case yes. but can do it in front of a TV camera. Yes, and that goes back to the questions we were talking about in the very beginning. Impeachment is not just a legal proceeding. It's a mixture of law and politics. Right. And President Trump uh, realized, I think, or decided that it was going to be mostly political and that the lawyers were not really talking to the senators. They were going to be talking to the American public through cable television. Right. So if you're going to use cable TV to present your defense, why not use people from cable TV to do it? Those are the ones the viewers are already comfortable with. <laughs> it's just amazing he didn't appoint Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson to the defense team, too. You've got a Rachel Maddow <laughs> on the other side. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Good show. Uh, so final question, John, you. So we're going through stories now of it's payback time now in mm. the Trump administration. People are going to lose their jobs. The president's going mm. to get a pound of flesh here. But Let's paint another picture. Let's say you're the administration. Let's say you're a very thoughtful member of Congress, and you look at what we've gone through the last three months. Let's talk about fixes and reforms to the system. Now, you mentioned FISA, for example. Give me two or three other obvious fixes that, that Washington should be looking at right now. So I think, of course, you're going to see continuing hearings in the House, uh, uh, oversight hearings. Uh, at the very minimum, I expect they would call John Bolton as a witness. Speaking of which, there was a ruling yeah. today on monuments, right? Yes. So again, the courts, that's another example of the courts. The monuments being president making money off his office. Uh, yeah, right? of his hotels, basically, right. the Trump mm -hmm. Hotel in Washington and the, but what did, the what resorts. Did the, what did the court rule? So the court basically said, and I don't think this is unexpected, the court said, we're not going to decide this. You know, you, don't, you, you can't, if you want to enforce the monuments clause. Right. 
then Congress go ahead and enforce a monuments clause. Mm-hmm. You know, you could you could forbid people from right. spending money at any of these places. But you could su- close them down. You're suggesting basically we're in for seven months of congressional fishing. Yeah, it's, it's you know the courts don't want to get involved in these direct head-on congressional presidential fights. Right. And I think that's probably one uh, reform you're going to see. I, don't, I wouldn't say reform, but you're going to see people trying to drag the courts in. You'll see people in Congress in particular unhappy with this result. They want the court. They're going to realize people don't trust us if we go after the president. So this is what happened after Watergate and after Iran-Contra. Congress tried to use the courts as a form or independent counsels to be the investigators and triers of the president rather than the impeachment process because that uh, just didn't work. I also think you're going to have to see reform of the National Security Council, the Defense Department, the State Department, how they carry out the president's uh, foreign policy because I think what you've seen is a rebellion essentially against that foreign policy. You've seen systematic leaks to uh, bring it down. Uh, also, I think in Cong- – you might see, although I d- doubt this will happen until you have uh, unified party control of the House and Senate. I think as happened after Watergate and Iran-Contra, you might see a more aggressive hand by Congress in foreign policy, particularly using foreign aid, military aid, and uh, reduce its deference to the president in foreign policy. That is the founders' design. Uh, you know, maybe the last thing to say is the founders uh, didn't think – that the Constitution would just operate like a perfectly functioning, well-balanced machine. They expected the president and Congress to be constantly fighting. They thought that's how you protect liberty is the president and Congress constantly at odds. The friction between them is how we make sure they're actually doing the public's business. And so in periods where the executive becomes powerful, sometimes it will become overconfident, maybe arrogant after winning the impeachment trial. That's when you would expect to see Congress trying to reassert its own prerogatives and try to fight back against the president. So I figure that's what's going to be happening over the next year or two. Very good. Final, final question. John, you so we went 106 years between Andrew Johnson and Richard Nixon, 1868 to 1974. We then went 25 years from Nixon to Bill Clinton. We've now gone 20 years from Clinton to Trump. If you follow this timeline, we're headed for an impeachment in 15, 10, five years, a lot sooner than that. How confident are you? What's your? Do you think that impeachment is going to be Use more often as this tool you yes. talked about, this parliamentary vote of no confidence, or do you think, well, to use a phrase to be used with abortion, not to equate the two, but you hear the phrase rare and exceptional. Do you think there's a way for Congress to get back to that idea that impeachment is rare and exceptional? Was it, Clinton was safe, rare, and legal. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say no, no three of which are going to apply to impeachment in the future. Right. I, I, I agree. I think uh, what you're going to start seeing are houses that say we don't care if the Senate will convict. Right. What's Nancy Pelosi saying right now? Trump is permanently stained in the history books just by having the word right. impeached next to him, regardless of uh, conviction. But we also assume that Nancy Pelosi did not necessarily want to. Like, that's yeah. she part didn't of the convention was she yeah. didn't want to go down the road, but a very strong partisan faction yeah. dragged her into it. Although now I think Trump has goaded her. I mean, if you saw that press conference yesterday, yeah. she was angry <laughs> at uh, Trump about questioning her religion and well, uh, took a lot of things Trump said personally. I, I was quite. Surprise. Well, guy was on Fox News, squeezed in between the two, so I was watching John, both Pelosi John, and the fitting, Trump. Fitting for a guy who made a lot of money in real estate, Donald Trump lives rent-free in a lot of people's heads. <laughs> he's, he's in her that's head now. Law. That's a great law. Yeah, it's not even Airbnb. He's permanently there. <laughs> he is. But no, do you think it's possible yeah. to kind oh, yeah. of reset no, I, this and make 
impeachment, the somber ceremony it's supposed to be. Because this was this yes. to me is one of the very distressing <clears throat> things to have to have Speaker Pelosi. I remember saying, "We really don't want to do this. This is a terrible moment." And then she hands out pens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and people yeah, are smiling, giving and, high fives. Remember Kamala Harris got hugs. kind of chided by. Um, <laughs> By um, uh, Chuck Schumer because they were doing a press conference afterwards and she's kind of cracking jokes and he kind of turns around and you know, straighten up. <laughs> so maybe one way to answer this is to zoom out a little bit and look mm-hmm. at it as a matter of political history. So uh, political scientists and historians say there are these periods in American history where uh, our system becomes ossified, really partisan. Uh, and you see a, an increase in the kind of tools that the branches are using at each other, against each other. At the same time, the system becomes so stuck, it loses its uh, tie with the American people. And then a new president comes in, a new system comes in and wipes that away. And so they say the presidents who did this are Jefferson, Jackson, Lincoln, FDR, and Reagan. And so when you see those presidents come in, it's what they do what you're calling for, a reset. And you see a kind of wiping out of the old order and a return more toward the founding principles uh, and where you see people step back from the brink of this ongoing partisan warfare. Uh, Maybe that's what the Trump years are prelude to, is maybe this is the last gasp. You could say maybe this is the last gasp of the New Deal system. And maybe after Trump or maybe the person after Trump, but maybe the system will reset. And then you'll see people step back. You won't see high brinksmanship, constitutional level warfare, like packing the Supreme Court and impeaching. And you'll see a new kind of system, which I would say is more appropriate for the new economy we have. You think about it, we're still living in the governmental system that was set up for the Industrial Revolution, <laughs> for the, right, the New Deal. is We're still living in the New Deal Republic. And that doesn't seem to fit for the kind of economy and society we have. And that's when these historians, political scientists, say you have this kind of revolutions that wipe away the past and you see a reset of the system. So maybe that's what you're going to see next. John, you, I enjoyed the conversation. And thank you for taking an hour out of your time. I know you're on a deadline for your book. (laughs) Thanks, Bill. Thanks. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th president of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the latest from Hoover's fellows, including John Yu, to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hooverinst. That's spelled H-O-O-V-E-R-I-N-S-T, at Hooverinst. John Yu is not on Twitter. Are you on Twitter or not? Never. There are a couple of John Yu's on there with some very interesting <laughs> names. I didn't think there were you. But you do have a book coming out. Uh, do you have a title? Uh, we're, I think we're going to call it Defender in Chief. <laughs> it's going to be Trump's battles for presidential power. Right. So yeah. the word Trump has got to be in the, in the, got to be in the headlines so it gets Amazon hits. <laughs> and what's the publishing date for it? Uh, hopefully July it's going to come out from St. Martin's Press. Terrific. Hope to have you on the podcast when it comes out. Oh, you, you got it. I'll be here. Thanks again, John. I really enjoyed the talk. Yeah, me too. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.